Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. This one is near and dear to my heart because I get to interview my co-host, Cal Rastiala, who needs no introduction to this audience, but he is the promised distinguished professor of comparative international law at UCLA and director of the UCLA Berkle Center for International Relations. Cal, I hardly need to welcome you to what should be your home, but welcome. I'm really excited to, to have you here. Thanks, thanks. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to be here with you. So today, Cal, we're going to be talking about your, what I have to say, <laughs> it's my unvarnished view of your brilliant biography of the late great American diplomat and Nobel laureate Ralph One, one of the central themes of your biography is that while no one person can claim the mantle of the creator of UN peacekeeping, a strong case can be made that one man, Ralph Bunch, did more than any other to make that concept a reality. And I think as you put it best, Bunch was a rare black man in a field that was notoriously pale, male, and Yale, and that he went from a childhood in South Central LA to the very pinnacle of global diplomacy. So with that, I wanted to ask you, and I know you spent much time in the archives doing your research and making his life really come to life off the pages. What in your estimation is the quality or the qualities that made Bunch special? Wow, that is a really great question. And I guess I would say that, you know, Ralph Bunch was was first and foremost uh, an incredibly hardworking person who really devoted his life to whatever he was doing, whether when he was a professor at Howard, when he was at the State Department, when he was at the UN, um, he was just famous for the intensity that he worked, the, the, the dedication to what he did. So obviously that was a, a necessary element. Um, I think he also, he had a number of other qualities that I think really mattered for his success and, and in his own mind, things that he pointed to frequently. He was quite optimistic he referred to himself at various times as a professional optimist, which is kind of an interesting uh, phrase, but that was something he really believed helped him both as a mediator, as a diplomat, as a, uh, you know, kind of a, um, a, a thinker, a writer, a doer in all the, all, all the endeavors that he was involved in. He was pretty pragmatic. And so a lot of the book explores the way that he, try to, in thoughtful ways, address the challenges of the post-war world and, and the post-colonial world. Um, and, you know, he was frankly a really skilled drafter and negotiator. And so um, those, those skills proved enormously important for the creation of the UN Charter that he had a really important hand in, but also in many of the later things that, that, he, that he did. So, um, so there's a kind of bundle of attributes that come together to make him the sort of mid-century diplomatic star that uh, that he really was. Um, but those are the ones that come to mind for me. Well, certainly in today's world, someone who's both pragmatic and a professional optimist is much needed. <laughs> Let me shift to something that you just pick up on a theme that you touched on, which is the UN Charter the very important role of the UN Charter in the sense of, uh, of trying to make effective international peace and how that relates to one aspect of his life's work, which you argue was creating tools for the international community to peacefully manage the process of decolonization. 
as a project of global racial justice. How do you think he understood the right and process of self-determination? And how did that relate to what was supposed to be the balance of peaceful relations under the structure of the UN Charter? Well, he himself would often refer to decolonization as his primary preoccupation throughout so much of his career. And I, I certainly make that case in the book that whether he was an academic, uh, a State Department official, or a UN official, the sort of through line for him was the process of rolling back European empire. And that was something that he saw, as you just mentioned, as uh, a, as a moral project, as a racial project, as something that tied together his interest in the global and in the domestic, of course, as a black man in mid-century America growing up in the in the teens, the 20s, the 30s, you know, he experienced firsthand uh, segregation and discrimination at, at, you know, very high levels. And um, he also saw that as part of what, um, what characterized uh, the colonial world, which, you know, I think for many of us in the when we look at the pre-war period, you know, we, well, I should back up and say, we don't look enough at the pre-war period, but when we do, we can see that that was sort of the key feature of, of international politics. So for him, self-determination was a really important value. And it's something that he, he fought for and, and we can get into more details, but I'll just say, you know, for example, his period at the state department during the second world war, he focused on many different things, but the thing that really uh, animated him and consumed most of his time was the trusteeship system that he wanted to create that would update the League of Nations mandate system and actually have, it, he hoped, have some kind of meaningful effect on self-determination. So he saw this as a, as a sort of human rights value, as a political value, uh, as a moral issue, um, but also as something that led to peace. He was a believer that without decolonization, we wouldn't really have a peaceful world. Um, and I'll just close this sort of long uh, answer by saying that, you know, he had some, so he had a lot of really interesting things to say about the United Nations during his career. But one of the things that really struck me and uh, in one of his speeches was, he said at one point, and I'm just going to paraphrase that, um, that the, the UN had no real dedication to the status quo, that the UN was not about just maintaining peace by sort of freezing the world order where it was in 1945 at the end of the war, that in fact, the UN's primary role was to achieve a more just world. And that that would often entail pretty major changes, changes that a lot of great and middle powers opposed. Um, but he felt that that was a primary purpose of the organization. And I think to be fair, when we look back at the centrality of self-determination, to the UN, especially in the 50s and 60s, he was absolutely right. So I want to talk more about that, the idea of a just world uh, and the primary purpose of, of the UN as an organization. What did Bunch think about the structure of the charter? And in particular, I'm focused on the UN Security Council's enormous power and privilege. Yeah, he was... I should say his direct experience in, in negotiating the charter at Dumbarton Oaks and then at San Francisco uh, was really around issues of colonialism. But he was, of course, privy to all of the things that were going on. Uh, and he was concerned about the 
huge privilege and power that the permanent five members of the Security Council had, in particular the veto. At the time, you know, that the negotiations were going on, I didn't really come across evidence of him in his diaries or other things, particularly focusing on that point. But certainly later when he's at the UN, and especially when he's under Secretary General and, you know, deeply involved in so many of the issues that animated the Security Council, he would often remark that he thought, you know, the veto was a real problem and that the Security Council in some ways was not sufficiently fair uh, to many of the other interests and powers around the world. So he was definitely a little bit troubled by that. And I think recognized that, you know, that it caused some, some real, some real challenges. On the other hand, Bunch was pretty pragmatic as we kind of started off talking about. Um, he was also quite patriotic and to the degree that he had a blind spot around the use of power, he, he had it with regard to the United States. And I think, you know, he generally thought the U S was on the side of right and that, um, you know, American power was a force for good in the world. And so that sometimes blinded him, not entirely, but maybe more than it should have to the way that the U.S.'s special role within the U.N. and just generally as one of the superpowers um, could cause problems. So, you know, I think he had a nuanced set of views, but he certainly was sympathetic to the idea that the U.N. in its structure probably needed to be more even handed. And the Security Council obviously is not that. So, so much of, of Bunch's work and his life work centered around the UN as an institution. And as you say, what it, the pre-war world obviously informed the post-war order. And I wanted to focus on the UN as an institution in the context of the post-war order. No one needs reminding that right now we're obviously having a larger conversation about the UN, its efficacy, the post-war order and the various challenges that we're, we're seeing in Europe and autocracies across the world. How do you think Bunch approached the UN as an institution and what would he say about how, and I guess whether and how it matters for the post-war order? Well, he was definitely a UN true believer and someone who, you know, he had a hand in shaping it, of course, but then pretty quickly he goes from the State Department to the UN itself, and there he spends uh, essentially the next 25 years, the last 25 years of his life, deeply enmeshed in the UN and rising, you know, right up to the very highest levels. And throughout that period, you know, he he of course had had frustrations with the UN. He saw the limitations, uh, particularly with regard to Vietnam. So the later chapter in the book, um, I discuss Vietnam and, and the ways that the UN was attempting to, to be a force for, for peace, Utant in particular, um, and the ways that Bunch personally was, was sort of trying to figure out some way to, he was acting as a kind of interlocutor between Lyndon Johnson and Utant. And, you know, he was involved in all these um, various efforts, none of which really came to much. And so, you know, he saw the limitations for sure. But throughout all of that, he never lost his belief that the UN was the, the best thing going for a diplomatic solution to the world's problems and for a more peaceful and just world. He really, really believed in that. And, you know, he dedicated his life and, you know, arguably, you know, he died at the age of 68 in part, I think, because of his, you know, his travel, his workload, he just kind of worked himself um, to a degree that was sort of amazing. And 
um, you know, that was a sense, a sign of his dedication to all of this. So, so he definitely thought the UN was flawed in some respects, but absolutely essential in other ways. Uh, and I think if you were looking at the world today, you know, he would probably be heartened by the fact that the UN continues to be so important in so many things. While at the same time, I'm sure if he was looking at, for example, the situation in Ukraine, mm. he would be deeply, deeply disturbed, or for that matter, the situation in the DRC, you know, a place where he spent an enormous amount of time, or the Middle East. And so, you know, many of the things that he worked on in the 50s and 60s continue to sort of haunt us. These problems continue to haunt us today. Um, but, you know, he definitely thought that the UN was the best alternative uh, to to warfare that he had seen, you know, firsthand living through World War II. He knew what that meant as people of that generation really did. Um, and he devoted himself to trying to make the UN the best organization it can be. Which is not surprising given, uh, given his pragmatism and his optimism. I, I suppose there's one question that, that lingers, which is in his professional and private writing, did you get a sense of where he thought there was room for reform or what he thought that as, as necessary as the United Nations was and is and potentially continues to be, what he thought needed some, I guess, a deep dive, a second thinking, uh, revisiting in terms of what could be reformed. Did you get a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I would say at some level, this isn't exactly reform, but just alluding to what, what we've already discussed, you know, his number one desire and belief it, for change was to free much of the world from the yoke of colonialism and then allow those countries, as they immediately did in almost every case, to join the UN and in a sense, transform the UN um, through their, you know, sheer numbers into a very different kind of organization than what was initially sort of envisioned at Dumbarton Oaks or Yalta. And in that sense, um, that was a hugely successful project. So, you know, the UN goes from uh, essentially 50 states at San Francisco, 50 entities signing the charter to today, 193. And even during his lifetime, you know, a huge, huge increase. So that for sure was something that he, he wanted, fought for, and I argue succeeded. Um, in, in bringing into, into realization. You know, in terms of other things about the UN, he was certainly frustrated by the limitations of the Security Council that we just were discussed. Um, you know, he was very, just in terms of thinking about Russia and Ukraine today, always very frustrated by the Soviets. Um, and, you know, while he never said, yeah, you know, we need to throw them out or something like that, he knew that was impossible, that that wasn't wise. Um, you know, they frequently viewed him as just a kind of arm of the State Department. As far as they were concerned, he never left the State Department. And so he had a lot of frustration with, with, with them. But I think beyond that, he in some ways was, was happy with the way the UN worked and thought the UN generally was doing the right things. And I'll just note that he sometimes didn't see or Towards the end of his life, maybe he began to glimpse a bit of this, but he didn't see the direction that the UN would ultimately go in the following sense, that the UN began as an organization really devoted to questions of war and peace, especially aggressive war. But then it ends up being an organization that doesn't do all that much with regard to aggressive war, um, in part because there's, there's less of it, and instead has to deal with the aftermath of 
of decolonization, with civil wars, uh, with the possible breakup of, of countries, and with questions that nobody really contemplated in 1945, like what's the role of the UN in global health or environment or things that were just dimly kind of appearing on the horizon in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, so, you know, the UN really evolves during his, his tenure there. Um, and he was supportive of that, but he didn't necessarily see it coming. Well, he certainly played a huge role in the shaping of UN peacekeeping, which continues to be front and center in today's world. Yes. I guess one, one final question for you, Cal, which is, um, which focuses on his work with lawyers <laughs> and be kind, but I know that as undersecretary general, he often worked with the legal team at the UN. What did Bunch think of lawyers? And again, be kind. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just first say with regard to peacekeeping, he, he viewed while he was most famous in the public eye for his Nobel Peace Prize, for his mediation in the Middle East, it was peacekeeping that he was most proud of. And he would often refer to that as kind of his greatest accomplishment or contribution. And he definitely thought peacekeeping was, you know, a real sea change in how the international system worked. Um, and I think it really was. And while there are many, many reasons to criticize peacekeeping as practiced, um, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that peacekeeping has actually been quite effective and, and really, really did uh, make a difference in many, many discrete cases. So, so absolutely, that was something that he thought was was a major contribution that he was very, very proud of. Yeah. Lawyers, that's a great question. <laughs> so, um, you know, he sometimes, so Doug Hammarskjöld, though trained as a lawyer, um, you know, Bunch was not trained as a lawyer. Bunch mm -hmm. was a political scientist. He got his PhD uh, in the Harvard government department in political science. And, you know, his dissertation was like a comparative colonial administration study. And so he was steeped in, in politics and institutions. He actually got some anthropological training in the 30s. He was kind of interested in, in anthropology. Law never really drew him in, though he had flirted with it when he was in college and thought he might pursue it, but he doesn't. Then when he gets to the UN, uh, you know, as you alluded to, he's often working with, uh, with lawyers and you know, he was frustrated by lawyers a lot of times. He was, mm -hmm. again, I think for his pragmatic side, the lawyerly mind seemed to rub him the wrong way. And interestingly, Hammerschild and Bunch would would occasionally, you know, scrawl these little notes back and forth, which um, were like on the sidelines of some security council meeting. And they would often be criticizing what they saw as the legal approach, which was, you know, in their, in their eyes, sort of, you know, too rigid, um, amoral, somehow missing the big picture. So not a huge fan of, of lawyers, but that said, he probably would have been a really good lawyer. And I'll, mm. I'll just close by saying Bunch, Bunch was an excellent drafter. And many people throughout his career pointed to the fact that whether at San Francisco, in the charter negotiations, or later with his Middle East mediation or, or many other instances in his career, that he was really skilled at finding some locution that would bridge the brackets in the text and make it all acceptable. Uh, and people marveled at his ability to do that. And I view that as a, you know, a key skill of a good international lawyer to be able to mm -hmm. do that. And he had that um, for sure. So, um, so I think, 
he probably had like some people who never go into law, but somehow are seem to be even better at it than we are. He was one of those people that I'm sure could have been a fantastic lawyer had he put his mind to it. That's terrific. Um, and obviously he, he took what could have been frustrating and turned it on its head to, to make an outstanding uh, undersecretary general during his tenure. Well, Cal, thank you so much. He's obviously an inspiration. I think he very much inspired you and we could use a lot more inspiration these days. So focusing on Bunch and his legacy is, is, is definitely worthy of, of our spending our time today. Thank you everyone for listening uh, and look forward to have you on our next episode. So Cal, thank you. Fantastic. Thanks, Catherine.